guys, and welcome to the Living Healthy Podcast presented by LA Fitness. I'm Candice. And I'm Andrew. And on today's episode, we're focusing on something that affects everyone. Jello. No, not quite. It's, that's that's not it at all, Andrew. Did you uh, look over the script notes? <laughs> really? Yeah. What? Okay. I I was prepared for Jello. What do I? Or what are no, we talking today about? Today we are talking about heart health. Heart health. Okay. Let me let me just look through my other show notes here. Pandas, pancakes, a lot of the peas here. Oh, there we go. Heart health. All right. Okay. Here we go. Heart health. Heart. Arguably one of our body's most vital organs. Without it working properly, all our other essential organs, like our brain, liver, and kidneys, wouldn't work either. Which is why we wanted to get a better understanding of how we can protect it and keep it strong. So we thought, what better time to talk about the heart than during American Heart Month? And so today on the show, we have Dr. Subarao Myla. He's board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, critical care medicine, and interventional cardiology. Plus, he's the incoming board president of the Orange County chapter of the American Heart Association, and he's the current medical director at the Hogue Cardiovascular Institute. And after reading all those credentials, he sounds like he's way overqualified for us to be asking him questions, but we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. And we can start talking about the jello. We can. Okay, great. All right. Well, maybe we will bring it up. We'll find yeah. a way to weave it in by the end. Uh, so on today's episode, we are going to be talking kind of about three different components, I guess, of the heart. The physical side, uh, the spiritual side, which is kind of interesting, and then the nutritional side of the heart. But let's start with the, the physical start, uh, side of the heart. And what makes the heart so special to the body? Why is it so important and vital? You don't have a heart. You don't have a life. The one organ that works ceaselessly every second, every minute, and the beating of the heart, marching to the drum of your desire, whether it is in love or excited about the new dance that you just learned. Heart is vital. The driving force in that closed circuit transportation system of the body. Interestingly, by the way, the red blood cells that carry the oxygen and nutrients that the heart muscle drives, they're all autonomous cars inside the body hmm. already. That's an interesting way to look at it. Huh. They're already self-driving. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So our blood cells are way more advanced than even certain car companies that are trying to do that. And they don't have traffic lights. <laughs> <And they don't. laughs> well, do they have, tra are traffic lights like fatty deposits that are slowing it down? Now that's a good way to bring up the topic. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're more like an 18 wheeler that just decided to crash the intersection. Oh Yikes. man, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, can we just talk about heart disease a little bit? I feel like we yeah. hear the term a lot, but what is it exactly? In the common parlance, when you talk about heart disease, you're almost always referring to a blocked artery from a cholesterol fatty plaque. And there are other heart diseases. There are arrhythmias, irregular rapid heartbeat, or you have these life-threatening arrhythmias that can kill the person instantly. Hmm. There are heart diseases where the heart muscle is weak. It's a pump. And when the pumping function is gone, it starts to enlarge like a big bag. Mm -hmm. And it can't pump. The fluid builds up in the lungs, and then you have heart failure. So there's a whole host of conditions. And interestingly, one leads to the other. You may have a blocked artery that goes on to damage the heart muscle. And the muscle then weakens, can't pump, develops the irregular heartbeat, put you at risk for sudden cardiac death, 
And then when you are revived, this may trigger a whole host of modern advances to save the life. That includes angioplasty, stents, cardiac rehab, weight loss, Hmm. treating sleep apnea, and a defibrillator pacemaker. Wow. So you're really laying out the case that the heart is kind of at the heart of all of these issues that um, can crop up and kind of impact your life, essentially. Absolutely. It is the epicenter. Hmm. What? So what is, like, what, I guess, causes the heart to start breaking down in that way and starts to have the pump deteriorate and, and cause all these issues? What are the, some of the leading causes of that? That's a great question. The The most common focus is on our lifestyle, because it is something we can control. But in reality, a significant number of heart diseases are mapped out in our genes. Mm. So in that sense, your genetic code is a lot more important than your zip code. Mm. But the nature or the nurture controversy is quite applicable to the heart. You can have a high-risk genes, you have a propensity, but the stimulus that makes the development of heart disease is still within our hands. It's within our grasp. So how much you eat, how is your lifestyle, where do you put your priority, are you on the move or not, are you a sedentary couch potato, and the only activity you have is moving the remote or a video game console Mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Mm. So is there one type of fitness exercise that benefits the heart more than another? Like would high intensity be better or would it be something like cardio or strength training? That's also a very interesting proposition. As you know, the high intensity interval training is becoming more popular now. When someone speaks of a heart healthy exercise, you think of the treadmills the stair masters, just to digress, they were invented to manage the prison population in England. And by the way, they put on the back of those treadmill belts corn and wheat husking because they wanted the prisoners to earn their living. For a heart point of view, in reality, anything that increases the heart rate and blood pressure continuously, repetitively, in small incremental a la carte, testing and stressing the limits is how the heart becomes adaptable. That doesn't mean you can scare the bejesus out of somebody where their heart rate, blood pressure rise, but they're not exercising. That won't adapt. So I can give a medicine to speed up the heartbeat in the laboratory. That is not a stress. Moving, exercising in any form is beneficial. In the old days, it could be just the treadmill or walking uphill. But nowadays, we're including strength training. The circuit, the repetitive motion of weights also increase the heart rate if you do it fast enough. Therefore, the high-intensity interval training is quite popular. In our efficiency-driven world, you don't have a lot of time And high-intensity interval training is a good way to get what you want in the shortest period of time possible. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. So that more of that to my routine. (laughs) Yeah. Why do people's heartbeats vary so differently, or greatly? I guess so. Me, like me and Candace, for example, we she has just like this crazy low resting heart rate, and it's it's very very hard for her to get her heart rate up, (laughs) even exercising. When we put heart rate monitors on each other, me, I'm like I can get up to like 200 beats a minute or something when I'm running. So. Um, why, how, is that going back to genetics again? Or what, what, why does that happen? 
It may not be genetics. It could be just the normal variants. Hmm. And we're thankful for that. Do we all want to have a 60-beat heart rate like a robot? Right. I mean, you don't exactly eat the same breakfast every day, even though I do. Mm-hmm. Most of us want the variety. Each body composition, the mental makeup, the hormone level, how they adapt and handle the stress levels, all in, intrinsically affect the heart rate. There are some who start to climb up the steps, their heart rate speeds up. But then they can adapt pretty quick and go on to do the exercise. And there are those whose heart rate hardly budges, regardless of what you do. In fact, if the heart rate doesn't appropriately rise with exercise, there may be a heart disease. Hmm. Or if the heart rate shoots off too fast, and the heart as a pump empties out, and that type of person is prone for fainting spells. We call it the POTS syndrome. Mm. And young women uh, are prone for that. And there is a way to treat the rapid heartbeat, what we call inappropriate rapid heartbeat. Mm. So there is a fine balance and a Goldilocks moment for that heart rate. It's anywhere from 50 to 100. And that's a nice broad range mm. for most of the day-to-day routine Like a resting activities. heart rate kind of, okay. That's what we call the resting heart rate. Okay. Anything excessive, then it needs to be tied to either an activity or they have an intrinsic warning. They're anxious, they have taken a cup of coffee, or they have a fever. There is an increased demand. Huh. That's super interesting. I'm definitely yeah. going to make an appointment <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with my yeah. doctor. How, how do people find out like what their um, heart situation is? Is it just going to a doctor? Do you have to see a specialist like to know kind of what how your genetics play into it? Just kind of like how me and Candace are so different. How do you learn what you have going on? That's, that's a very good question. It's progressive. It helps everyone to be prepared. Um, you can't predict the future but you can read the tea leaves from the back. Hmm. Parents, grandparents, first-degree relatives, if they have a heart condition, if there is a heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, if they had sudden death, stroke, they all put you at an elevated risk, particularly if the women, the first degree, under 60, and if it is men under 55, that's mm. clearly. When, when mm. I ask my patients, they tell me, oh, yeah, my grandmother died at the age of 90 of a heart attack. Well, everyone eventually dies right. when the heart stops. That is not the predictive factor. Then I look at myself in the present state. Am I obese? Am I overweight? Am I active? Is my food consumption increasing? That the body is getting a signal that my belly needs to get bigger. That's where my excess fat is stored, the camel hump to help me for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. Or is my waist circumference in the right range? They're normals, they're available. And then a self-reflection of how active am I? And then final question is, how am I feeling now and when I'm active? If I am very active and I have no exhaustion, my routine daily activity is uninterrupted. I can go further. My heart rate may rise, but it quickly adapts faster. Those are all good signs that you have been adapted. Hmm. 
Look at yourself in the mirror. If you have a good muscle structure, do you have a good posture? Are you short of breath while having a conversation with your friend? Not a good sign. Mm -hmm. If you have to pause to take a deep breath during a conversation, that is a warning. What's your sleep pattern? Can you lay flat or do you have to have pillows propped up? Do you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you find sitting up in a lazy boy chair is much better than laying flat? Mm. All these are subtle clues. Are you getting short of breath with minimal activity? Is climbing a flight of steps is a simple rule of thumb. Mm. If you can easily climb a flight of steps, that you are in a good shape. But if you're huffing and puffing at the end, you need to get checked. Right. You may be just deconditioned because of overweight, right. et cetera, but that's a warning. So there's Thank a lot you. of really like, you gotta be pretty honest with yourself talking. You probably, if you really dig down and think about, you probably know the right answer to all those. And it's just about coming to terms with admitting it probably and then seeking help for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was gonna say too that it sounds like you can make your heart stronger if it is weak with exercise. And so that's at least good. It's not like you have a weak heart and then you can't do things to improve it. Right, yeah. Like like exercise is a big one, right? So exercise, eating better, it kind of goes back to the basics of what you need to do. Yeah. We get lost in the way. uh Um, The mirror in the Disney movies that tells you you're the fairiest. Right, right. It will always tell you. The problem is we tend to forget and reflect back. Let's go back five years ago. What was my picture? It is so easy to get slightly larger dress or a mm-hmm. uh, shirt, and we tend to forget that we put on the weight. Right. Yeah, it's very true. I wanted to ask you about high blood pressure. Does high blood pressure matter more than heart rate? Yeah, because like high blood pressure we've heard is like known as the silent killer. So how are they connected, or are they different? That's a good question. So the combination of the heart rate and the high top number The systolic is what we call a double product. And the higher the product, the higher the output or the resistance to the circulation. Those are the two things we're measuring. If somebody's output is not high, the heart rate rises to compensate. But Mm. if someone's blood pressure intrinsically is very high, that is a lot of resistance to pumping. It's like trying to empty a two-liter Coke bottle when the narrowing is even smaller. Hmm. And that's, so between the two, I would pick high blood pressure as a riskier proposition. A high heart rate is actually reacting to something else, part of the maladaptive compensation, hmm. whereas the high blood pressure is a signal. It doesn't mean disease. By the way, we just changed the standards. Uh, not 130 right. over 80. Now we were 120 over less than 80 as the normal. So right. all of a sudden, 8 more million Americans have reached the new definition of hypertension. We call it the stage one. We used to call it pre-hypertension, right. mm-hmm. but now it is. It doesn't mean they all need medications. It means that they need to pay attention right. to a lifestyle. If there are five stages, and if I tell you you're already at a stage one, it gives you hope and fear at the same time. Right, yeah. Hope is that you're in the earliest stage, you have a chance to regress it. The fear, oh my God, I already reached a stage one. And that's the important thing. 
That's really smart. Right. Yeah. I think it's a good thing that they did that. They yeah. made those changes. Yeah. Like we talked about, it's like nearly 50% now of all U.S. adults now is kind of in that category. Um, yeah. So I think we did a good job covering kind of the physical side of what the heart actually does and what it's responsible for and how important it is. But there is this other side of the heart um, in our cultures that the spiritual side um, in regards to love and a broken heart and all those things. So does love actually truly affect the heart? And uh, how does that happen if it is the case? Great question. Many feel love starts in the heart, but it is somewhere in the body, and it could be the brain, but the control and the connection between the heart and the brain is very intricate and immediate. Mm. How fast the heart reacts to the hormone is because of the blood flow connection between the two organs. And love clearly impacts in many ways. The first attraction, the love, is initially physical lust. It takes time for that to reach the ethereal, platonic, spiritual level. In the beginning, the physical attraction and the lust triggers a host of hormones. These are the same hormones that you get when you're excited, the dopamine you hear, the adrenaline pumping. Mm -hmm. So naturally, the heart rate feels faster, but more importantly, the heartbeat feels heavier. It's much stronger contraction. And you move on to the next stage is the attraction. And the attraction stage is where the pleasure centers in the body are flooded with these hormones. Mm. These are the same centers, by the way. They light up. If you do an MRI examination of a teenage couple in lust and attraction phase, those centers just light up. Wow. These are the same centers for a gambler in Vegas who is winning. Right. It's the reward (laughs) system. Hmm. And then you move on. Later on, the hormone profile changes. There is a trust built. Neuronal connections bring a different set of hormones. It's the oxytocin. This is the hormone of love Mm. with attachment. Persians discovered this a long time ago. They call it wabastegi or dependence, attachment. It's the oxytocin hormone that maintains that relationship even though there is no intimacy in sex. Wow. That is so interesting. That is really interesting because I feel like that I can connect with that because it always felt like there was a... There was a time clock with that lust element of a relationship for me, and it was only until I found my wife that like, I went beyond that, and it felt like it got stronger beyond that, what I knew as my kind of where I lost interest or something. And that's, that was my cue, like this is the right one. Um, so that is really interesting. It sounds like the, it, the contractions are stronger. It's pumping like more blood quicker. Is that how it, that's how it like the heart sends out those signals quicker to those pleasure centers essentially because it's doing more? That's correct. The The hormones function is to drive. If somebody has a low blood pressure in the emergency room, we give the exact same hormone to make mm. that happen. When we do, they are in extremes. They don't exactly feel the love, by the way. Right. <laughs> they are thankful right. that their vital signs are being kept alive. Right. And um, the as time passes, the pleasure centers get saturated. They Mm. reset their thermostats so Mm. that hormone surge no longer gives that rise. Hmm. Wow. 
Okay. I, first of all, that was my favorite question that we've asked. I think just ever. Because, yeah. Like, that's super I, cool. I love love. I'm super cheesy like that. So I just, <laughs> I love your response too. It was great. And I don't want to kind of like be a bummer and we bring the talk conversation. About the other to, side. We have to talk about the other side of this. So I need to ask, can you really die of a broken heart? It sounds so sad, but I'm curious. Can you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, not only die of a broken heart, it can have a domino effect. Um, mm. I had the unfortunate experience of taking care of a couple where um, the son was overcome by the opioids and uh, committed suicide. And the mother was in my office at that time. And it was a frightening experience to actually witness what she's going through. Mm. And uh, she suffered a cardiac arrest listening to the news. And then we revived her, luckily. We brought her to the hospital emergency room, and the older husband had a heart attack three days later. Wow. So the broken heart is a real condition. It's been described way back in the poems of Shakespeare, Rumi, and throughout the civilization, people knew intense grief can bring down the deep sinking sensation they describe in the pit of their stomach or deep in the center of the chest. And they would have trouble breathing. They pass out, uh, lose the blood pressure, temporarily recover. We don't exactly know the trigger that mm. directly affects the heart. We know that it is quick, so it's got to be through a hormone or a nerve track. And mm. many of us have. Um, there is a Japanese dentist who described Takosubo, but we all knew and we call it stress cardiomyopathy. And uh, for various types of stress, broken heart, love affair, it can trigger a sudden enlargement of the heart. We call it the ballooning of the heart. Mm. And it can trigger arrhythmias and kill somebody. Wow. wow. Yeah, I've always... Um... I, I feel like most people have seen it at some point, some couple that's been together for 50, 60 years. And when one of them finally dies, the other one, it's like within a year, if they're so in love, it just seems like it. And that may be because of the broken heart, like you said, may not be the exact thing that does it, but because it's so vital for everything else, it creates that domino effect where it the health slowly deteriorates over the next year. Uh, it's, it is amazing. So it sounds like science hasn't like, pinpointed exactly what it is but there's enough evidence to support kind of the the general anecdotal evidence that this exists correct and there is enough evidence to support to increase the attention and care to the surviving spouses Mm. in those scenarios right can you fix a broken heart? Because I'm really hoping that there's like a positive spin on this. Like not everyone's <laughs> going to die of one, right? <laughs> well, with the t- increased care or increased attention, what would you do? With, with like all that? the dating apps that we have, it should be easy, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> yeah, but, for the, yeah, for those one-year relationships maybe, yeah. but what about that? Yeah. So there is this interesting concept that is circulating that how long does it take for you to recover spontaneously without the help of a medicine or Dr. Ruth or Mm -hmm. some love potion. Mm -hmm. The thing that circulates on the internet is half the length of your relationship, which is sheer nonsense. There was (laughs) absolutely no scientific basis. There was an episode on um, 
uh, How I Met Your Mother, I think, mm-hmm. as well show. as uh, Charlotte in um, Sex and the City, mm. referring to how, you know, it takes half the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's actually much longer. People uh. don't forget. There is no closure. You hear that lingo. Mm-hmm. Mind does learn to seal off, wall it, protect it and cherish that. Mm. And periodically when they're on their own and when they go back to reflect it, they open the door, peer the curtain, and then still feel the sorrow. That is their way of processing the guilt. In mm. fact, there are those who feel the guilt if they moved on too quick. Mm. There is the relapse. Bereavement or missing, these things are very complicated aspects to it. And from a medical point of view, how do you recover is to prevent you don't fall prey into forgetting your lifestyle, uh, eating comfort food. And this is something Mm. pushed by Hollywood. The moment there is a relationship break, you have this big tub of Baskin Robbins (laughs) coming. (laughs) And it just doesn't happen that way. And the worst thing you could do is to take up drinking. Yeah. Or drugs, you know, people tend to withdraw. The beauty we have now is the cell phone, most powerful computer. Michigan University is doing studies on how the telltale signs of text messaging, the number of words shrink. And if you have a location-based sensing, the number of steps they make reduce. Mm, They are actually developing predictive software for to detect teenagers who are becoming depressed and withdrawn. Wow. And this can do without actually counting or actually reading their text message. This is not a qualitative. It's a a pure quantitative. People who are depressed and withdrawn, either because of a broken relationship, the first thing they reduce, their total body movement goes into a shell hibernation mode. And they tend to be the most vulnerable in taking a impulsive decision. Wow. That that, that's really interesting. interesting. That's very fascinating to kind of figure that out to, yeah. Well, that would be putting that to some good use then, <laughs> our phones. So <laughs> that would be good. What are, what are some ways, so if you're in that position, what are some ways you can make your heart kind of feel happier or stronger? That's an excellent question. Contrary to popular belief, the comedy clubs are very good. <laughs> good. When you this. are in company... <laughs> and the company is vested in you and your welfare and you're receptive and open, the comedy puts them in a safe manner to experience the misery and solitude of the others and bring out the silliness and the temperance. We all ultimately Mm. move on and it gives them a perspective that it is possible to do. So it, it, the important thing is for the support structures. And we see this in illness too, cancer. If you have a good family support, or it is a heart disease, the family support and their receptiveness to these encouragements are very crucial. Hmm. So find who out who the jokester is in your family and go talk to him for a minute and hopefully but that's interesting from if you are the jokester from the perspective of being able to support others around you like knowing that 
you kind of could play a vital role in like don't change who you are necessarily because of this really sad situation like try and be sensitive obviously but find a way to still encompass some what's normal and your humor into that because it could really help them absolutely you're not alone in this it's a collective journey we all have experienced look how and then you fill in the blank with an uncle, friend, or somebody, mm. how they have done. It's no admission of vulnerability that you're actually seeking out help. Mm-hmm. And that is important. The, the biggest risk now we face, and people haven't addressed around this, is the elderly and the loneliness. I have a huge geriatric population, and the loneliness that affects them the fear of dying alone. Mm. They're not afraid of dying. They feel the purpose is gone. Sanjay Gupta made a tremendous presentation recently on the CNN, how we should be addressing, whether it is technology or checking in, calling. We have very inexpensive FaceTime methods or a very cheap but a very large television camera. Cisco did the research. If you project an image that is at least 80% of the size of the head, the emotional connection is markedly enhanced than Mm. seeing a tiny postage stamp size FaceTime. Mm. And that may be something what I would like when I retire and lonely in a corner room, a wall filled with these cameras showing me what is going on out there. Right. (laughs) Sounds like you belong in NSA or something. (laughs) I'm just monitoring everyone. (laughs) That's That's, interesting. Yeah, because I could see how that maybe FaceTime, if we incorporate it more onto our televisions or where you do that on a bigger screen, that would be interesting. Surround yourself with others. And that will make your heart happier. That's yeah. right. Or or just pet a dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's even that better. That, that one definitely works Can for I you. Can I add yeah. quickly on this? Yeah. The Japanese need to be congratulated. They have almost animal realistic pet dogs that just been uh, released. This response has, the skin has so many sensors. It responds, and when they tested the MRI of the subjects holding them, their happy centers are ringing when there is an animal. Dogs are incredibly So they know that they know animals are very, they're very ahead of that. Mm -hmm. As you know, animals sense your emotion, Mm -hmm. particularly we have a um, corgi, a Dexter, uh, we call him. He tears everything apart. But (laughs) if anyone in the room, if anyone in the room is sad, he would go there and he would Uh. start, you know, uh, trying to get their attention right. and Aww. trying to put a happy face to it. Huh. Dogs are wow. so cute. Yeah. I love them so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That was that was really fascinating discussion on yes. the spiritual side. That's very yeah. cool to hear that. Um, the last component that we wanted to talk about while we have your time is kind of the nutritional side of the heart or what we need to do um, putting the energy into our body that can help make our our heart strong. So what are some foods that our listeners could incorporate into their grocery list when they go to the store um, to kind of help their heart health? So here is the idealistic 
and the pragmatic uh, viewpoint. Idealistic, you can list off all, go vegan or vegetarian or flexitarian or Mediterranean. Uh, you can do that scale and probably settle on a Mediterranean as the number one. But if you have a high blood pressure, you would switch to a DASH diet, which mm -hmm. is the, there are eight different diets, but essentially a low salt Okay. Uh, that is crucial. But on a more realistic level, if you increase the number of vegetables, fruits, any of them that have bright colors, the bright colors is because of the flavonoids, polyphenols, and uh, that's the kind. And uh, reduce the amount of animal fat, uh, animal meat intake. I mean, I'm not even going where normal farm practices. If anyone digs deep into the animal farming in the world, it is abominable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy. I was born and raised as a vegetarian, but then became an opportunistic carnivore. <laughs> but there are values that are coming forward with science now and going vegan vegetarian diet. The myth is vegetarian diet doesn't have enough protein. There are plenty of protein sources. Mm. I would pick a whole grain as opposed to processed food. The three sinful things we can talk about are the salt, sugar, and starch. Okay. It, it's not so much what you eat, it's how much you eat mm -hmm. is one argument. But if you start with the healthy ingredients and how you eat, what I mean by how I eat, eat small meals five times a day as opposed to big meals. Chew the food and not have, my kids say, how can you chew a donut? So obviously <laughs> you have to pick right. the right food. But yeah. the whole Ezekiel old world grains have a purpose and that is it forces you to chew chewing does two things you you have the time to gauge have you had enough food do i really need to go finish right. the food that's one thing the second one chewing actually releases a hormone that reaches the satiety center mm. And that's the reason... You get so many chews before you're full. Correct. <laughs> that's absolutely correct. Yes. Let's um, chew on that one. Right, yeah. <laughs> nice. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your train of thought there. Um, so we've been talking about kind of the foods a little bit and some of the stuff to go eat. So I, what I wanted to focus on was the, the bright foods. That sounds interesting. It's almost like a kid in, uh, is drawn to colors, bright colors. So when you go into the grocery store... Pretend you're a kid, be drawn to the bright colors, not down the cereal aisle, uh, but in the fruits and vegetables section and kind of go towards those. Not so much maybe. I love potatoes, though. I'm a little bit Irish, so I feel like I eat a lot of starch and potatoes. That's so limit that is kind of what you're saying? Correct. Potatoes okay. are not bad, actually. They okay. have a good amount of fiber. Okay. It's the processed the, mm. the material that comes out in a potato chip is not the potato. Right. Sweet potato, okay. for example, has a lot more fiber in it, not so much sugary material. That's the key. It's the quantity that matters. And if somebody is starting a diet plan, I generally tell them, don't drastically change. Pick one meal at a time and cut 80% into your plate 
put 20% on the side. Mm. This is a so-called Okinawa principle. Mm. After World War II, when the mm. resources were short, they started to cut down their portions and have done incredibly well. Right, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. And we're seeing that. Many of our seniors go to restaurants and they split the main dish. Oh, yeah. Which well, is a very smart thing. The to portions do. are out of control, yeah. though. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other thing. Like, They're the, onto something. Yeah, we should restaurant, all do that. The, the, the portions are insane. Like yeah. you go there and you're like, can I literally order half of this for half the price? Because that's what I really need. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just, I have to take it home as leftovers. It's crazy. It is. My wife collects antique silverware uh-huh. and dishes and go to the garages. The old uh, dinner plate is 10 inches. Charger is 12 inches. Wow. Now... The now? charger is 20 to 25 oh inches. My God. Oh my the dinner gosh. plates are big. The portions are very large. Right. That's, yeah, when that's when I was much. practicing portion control, actually, I had heard about that, pl- like, eat off smaller plates thing. Correct. I didn't know if it was a myth or true. Obviously, it's true. Oh, there but is. I, so I bought the smaller plates, and I eat my dinners and meals off of, like, appetizer plates now. And that's helped yeah. me with portion control. Absolutely. There was a famous study done, and a moviegoers were given free popcorn. Mm-hmm. On one side, a small-sized popcorn put in a medium-sized bag. And the other side, small-sized popcorn in a small-sized bag. They were required to bring them back. When they brought it back, those with the medium bag ate the whole thing. Mm. Those who were given the small bag left behind the popcorn. Mm. Wow. So they took, a smaller right. portion in a smaller plate makes a big sense. Right. Because you're like you're almost like, this is all I have. So you're going to drag it out maybe a little bit longer. You're going to let those... Um, that satisfied full feeling kick in earlier mm-hmm. or, or kick in at the proper time and then you can feel full and not have eat, not as eaten as much. Yeah, portion control does seem like kind of the number one thing. It's very, it can be very hard to do though. And <laughs> actually, speaking of portion control, we've all heard that dark chocolate is healthier oh, for yeah. us. And so I wanted to talk about, is there some kind of like magic number for how much dark chocolate you should consume? Well, first of all, you pick a dark chocolate that is at least 65% cacao. Okay. And I would recommend no more than one and a half ounces. Is that per day? That's per day. Okay. Okay. That's a pretty decent amount. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are European studies in uh, women in England. They show that if you had two candy bars of dark chocolate per week, your stroke rate is less than the other person who doesn't eat by 25%. The challenge is the dark chocolate still has fat and calories. So in general, it's better to stick with dark. The milk chocolate has a lot of sugar, so you have to be careful. Mm, Okay. See, I know you're a big, Gans, you're a big milk chocolate, (laughs) right? I'm a dark chocolate chocolate person. I prefer the dark chocolate. I thought I had heard that um, we're running out of chocolate. Like, because you have to put so much more... uh, chocolate into dark chocolate that we're going through it faster and that we could actually run out in like five years oh or that'd something. be so sad i know wouldn't that be so sad what would happen on valentine's day what would the, i don't know i don't <laughs> no know are we chocolate. gonna make chocolate uh. extinct is that possible I we will switch to jello and there we go <laughs> Boom. Full circle. awesome well done well done uh <laughs> All right, so I guess let's kind of wrap this up. We appreciate you taking the time being here. Um, We always like to do something called actionable advice, something our listeners can kind of take away from our conversation. They can really uh, sink their teeth into, pun intended a little bit there, and uh, and just something that they can actually incorporate into their life. So when it comes to the heart in particular, what do you want listeners to remember? So it's important to know your own risk. And it's very easy to do using the pointers, knowing your family history, what your lifestyle is, 
and what you can do. Each individual will have their own action plan. On a lifestyle advice, I would recommend parking your car far away in the <laughs> mall so you're forced to walk. And in fact, you should pretend that you forgot where you parked the car. <laughs> I would recommend you go and blow up the image of your personal best that could be as a teenager or in college. And go one of these printing shops and they make a life-size picture. Hang it in the living room that you will see every day. Hmm. That's a great reminder that you could be your own personal best again. Because our single focus across the country is the obesity epidemic. American Heart Association is focused on that. Um, it's not just childhood. All age groups were eating larger quantities, were less active. And now you have the binge watching. Mm -hmm. I would wrap up by final recommendation. Go do the binge watching on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Put not 10,000 steps a day. Aim for 100,000 steps a day. There are people and there are tips on the internet how you can increase that. Right. Stretching is very important. Most of, most of us Americans, we do not spend enough time with stretching or yoga. Hmm. Right. Yeah, those are good two options. And mm -hmm. LA Fitness definitely has yoga. And the yes. treadmill thing, I always thought that would be a good idea. Like, just bring your shows for Netflix, put it on the treadmill, and watch, like, two hours there. There yeah. you go. Done. Don't even and know you're most walking. of our clubs have Wi-Fi. So, boom. Don't even got to use the data. <laughs> Let uh, the battery <laughs> limit your length. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> True. Um, all right. Well, thank you. We want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. All right. So uh, we got another show in two weeks. We're going to be coming back and uh, with a brand new episode. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Living Healthy Podcast presented yes. by LA Fitness. As always, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And just don't forget to use the hashtag Living Healthy Podcast. Yes. That's how we, we know you that. can get to us. You can also <laughs> send emails to blog at LAFitness.com. We love reading them. I think we got like 50 last week. So uh, we're getting a lot. So keep sending them uh, and we can generate some new topics. So until next time, we'll see you in the gym.